0: One can easily frame much of human history as a conflict between those who control the resources humans need to survive and those who do not. Art history, of course, is no exception. The majority of artistic masterpieces were commissioned by the wealthy and, as such, reflect their outlook and worldview. Despite money being a social construct, its power over all of us is self-evident. Filmmaking is certainly no exception. Since making a movie is a complex process requiring many moving parts clicking into place with a high amount of investment, the medium has traditionally been inaccessible to anyone who doesn't have significant financial backing. We're only now entering a period where working class people have the possibility of engaging with this art form without necessarily requiring patronage. This environment dates back to the birth of cinema. Georges Méliès, one of the key architects of special effects in filming storytelling, was eventually forced out of the industry because wealthy investors considered his work too artsy to be commercially viable. Méliès bitterly uh, replied to his ouster by reminding them that while he was only an artist and not a businessman, it's apparent to him that without artists they would not have anything to sell. This battle repeats itself constantly throughout the history of film, particularly with United Productions of America, or UPA, an animation studio composed of left-leaning weirdos who fled Disney during the tumult of the 1941 animators' strike. These artists, inspired by Chuck Jones' experiments with limited animation in his 1942 short The Dover Boys, wanted to abandon realistic rotoscoping and singing cartoon animals in order to push the boundaries of what animation could do. And for roughly 10 years, they managed to do exactly that, collecting accolades, winning awards, and inspiring imitation along the way. This recording will focus on several UPA shorts directed by founder John Hubley. We'll be taking a close look at what he accomplished, how this reverberated across the wider culture, and how the suits who controlled the gears of the industry affected things. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. All right, joining me on this one is my brother, Sylvan. Hello. And my sister, Cheryl.
1: I'm also here. We
0: just watched four UPA shorts that, uh, Hubley was directly involved in, and also, um, a YouTube documentary about the rise and fall of the studio to provide historical context. You have seen some of them in the distant past, but, uh, what's your hot take on them now?
1: Um, now that I'm not a child and I'm an adult, I find them to be very beautiful, I, I find them to be more interesting, but as a kid, I hated, I hated them so much.
0: Yeah, the UPA shorts were rerun during our childhood on Nickelodeon, uh, most notably on the show Wienerville. And yeah, I don't remember thinking much of them then, but I, I do feel very strongly about them now.
2: Overall, they're not really my jam, but I can appreciate what uh, the artists were going for, and I certainly like the fuck you corporate master spirit behind all of it. Really? That's
1: so surprising, Sylvan. Yeah, shock of soccer. shocked. <laughs>
0: all right, before we get into the shorts themselves, I'll give a brief narration of Hubley's background and the formation of UPA. Uh, Hubley was born in Marinette, Wisconsin in 1914 and inherited a passion for art from his mother and maternal grandfather, both of whom were professional painters. After studying at the Art Center of Design for three years as a teenager, he landed a job at Disney at the age of 22. He was an animation director on Fantasia, specifically the Rite of Spring sequence.
2: Okay, that's not exactly the one that I would have uh, expected.
1: Right? I'm like immediately like puzzled by that. I'm like, that's the same person?
2: I was thinking more of, like, the parts where the lion is experimenting with the sound. That seems like UPA shit right there.
0: Uh, he was not happy directing parts of the Rite of Spring sequence. Specifically, he thought it was scientifically inaccurate for the dinosaurs to die in the desert because, you know, the meteor caused temperatures to go down.
1: <laughs> That's the part of that that was unrealistic.
0: Yeah, Hubley's a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Hudley was one of many who felt constrained by Disney's style and was part of the exodus resulting from the studio's contentious efforts to unionize. He joined many of his colleagues in screen Gems, but soon left because he found supervisor Dave Fleischer to be a stupid asshole.
1: Is, is that a direct quote?
0: His direct quote was intellectual lightweight.
1: <laughs> so much work.
0: After enlisting in the Air Force, Hubble began working on wartime propaganda shorts alongside Chuck Jones and Dr. Seuss, among others. This is when he made his directorial debut. A lot of the propaganda shorts don't have proper credits, but the one that we definitely know he was involved in was one where uh, this guy's trying to get everyone to turn out their lights during the air raid, and one of them won't. And the, the short is him trying to like hunt down that person and stop them.
1: I know that one!
0: Now, the Air Force didn't really care what the shorts looked like as long as they were produced on time and on budget, so Hubley was free to indulge in his passion for modern art, particularly his interest in the painter Paul Klee. Hubley's propaganda work attracted attention from the United Automobile Workers Union, who wanted to produce an animated campaign ad supporting the 1944 re-election bid of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hubley took the project to the newly formed industrial film and poster service. Directed by Chuck Jones, the resulting hell-bent for election depicted FDR as a sleek, modern train pulling munitions to war victory. We saw a part of this one and I
2: found it very disturbing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Trains with Faces has never been my jam. I wasn't really a Thomas kid. Uh,
0: Roosevelt's opponent Thomas Dewey was, by contrast, an old junker called the Defeatist Express. The short was a success, resulting in another assignment, the 1945 anti-racism pair the Brotherhood of Man. That was one of the earlier collaborations between Hubley and Bob Cannon. They came to disagreement over it because uh, Hubley did not like Cannon's, like, cutesy style. He thought that Cannon was kind of a little too precious.
1: He was working with Chuck Jones! <laughs> Are you kidding me? Chuck Jones is the one that's like eyelashes. Eyelashes for
2: days. Falsies for the rabbits. We're even gonna make the Grinch cute.
0: We were talking about 1941, Chuck Jones. The eyelashes hadn't come in yet. (laughs) Flush with recognition, the fledgling studio renamed itself UPA and took on more government propaganda shorts. However, this work dried up after the war when anti-communist figures took over Congress and the FBI took an interest in Hollywood leftism. No formal charges were filed against anyone at U.P.A. in the early days of McCarthyism, but the studio lost its government contracts as Washington severed ties with film studios as a whole. Put a pin in this one. This one's coming back.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: Yeah, kind of like in Mickey House Clubhouse, it's like, this is going to be useful for later. <laughs> Filled with irony. Uh, UPA was forced to enter the crowded theatrical short market and began subcontracting for Columbia. The studio's animated shorts division, Screen Gems, was considered third-rate, and they were unhappy with the output generated by their subsidiary. UPA was eager to produce shorts in their own style, but Columbia forced them to use their own characters, the Fox and the Crow, in the initial shorts. The Fox and the Crow were created by Frank Tashlin and based on the Aesop fable. Chuck Jones cited them as an influence on the Roadrunner, but Hubley found the characters bland and promptly abandoned them after fulfilling an obligation to direct three shorts starring them. Uh, Robin Hoodlum, The Magic Fluke, both in 1949, and Punchy De Leon in 1950. Now, UPA's story as a fully realized creative force begins with 1949's The Ragtime Bear. This one I couldn't find a synopsis on, so I'm just going to wing it. Um, We open with a curmudgeonly nearsighted gentleman named Mr. Magoo, perhaps you've heard of him, and his nephew Waldo. They're going to the hodgepodge lodge for peace and quiet, but Magoo is annoyed by uh, Waldo's banjo plunking.
2: Poor Waldo. You
0: know, Waldo doesn't do super great in most Magoo shorts, but this one in particular is savage to him.
2: Cheryl was pretty sure he was dead for a good chunk of it. and then we didn't see him for, like, ten minutes. (laughs) The short itself is seven minutes, so that was quite a harrowing ten minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Waldo's banjo plunking attracts the attention of a ragtime-loving bear who switches places with Waldo, and uh, since Waldo's wearing a shaggy, like, collegiate coat, Magoo doesn't notice. Antics ensue as the bear keeps playing ragtime banjo. He's a very quick study on that banjo. And Magoo just goes to lengths and lengths to stop him, putting on a ski lift, sleeping with a shotgun. Uh, He accidentally shoots a bear-skinned rug. When the bear tries to extract the banjo and Magoo crestfallen because he thinks that he just murdered his nephew.
2: Despite the fact that he very much shot him, like, intentionally.
0: (laughs) Tries to pour some water on him. Waldo comes in and takes his place and, feeling confused try it. Magoo hands Waldo his banjo back. However, adding that if you play one note of that, I'm going to blast you. The bear begins playing the banjo and
2: (laughs) Mr. Magoo, people die when you do that. He was
1: aware of it too. He's just like water, water will fix it.
0: And the, the short ends with the bear playing his banjo while Magoo chases Waldo firing at him. So they tone down the character pretty quick after this.
1: I also noticed that we didn't see Waldo in the next one of those you showed us.
0: Waldo becomes a regular character. But yeah, he's not in the next one.
2: He survived?
0: He survived. Waldo's okay. Okay
2: (laughs) Okay-ish. There's some trauma there.
0: The Ragtime Bear is the first appearance of both Mr. Magoo and the Jolly Frolics banner that replaced Columbia's struggling Screen Gems brand. Columbia hated the short, feeling that it was too divergent from the cats, mice, ducks, and rabbits dominating animated short films, which for U.P.A. was exactly the point. Hubbley convinced them to release it by claiming that the bear was the main character and would be spun off into its own series. Of course, when the short was a hit and audiences clearly liked it because of Magoo, Columbia solidified a distribution deal with U.P.A. and insisted on more Magoo shorts. The creation of Mr. Magoo is multifaceted. Hubley claims that he based Magoo on his uncle, whereas some people say that uh, W.C. Fields is a very obvious influence on the character, which I'm forced to agree with.
1: I don't know who that is.
0: Uh, Early stand-up comedian, well, film comedian, kind of talks at the roof of his mouth. If you heard W.C. Fields or someone impersonating him, you'll see some Magoo in there. Hubbley credits Magoo's bullheadedness as what makes him a comical rather than a tragic figure. He adds that the stubborn folly of this grouchy-ass man is why people enjoy him. Out of all of the Golden Age cartoon icons, Magoo is a weird little outlier. He's one of the few humans, for example, and, and even then, he's pretty different from, like, Betty Boop or Popeye. And, you know, he's not an anarchic troublemaker like Woody Woodpecker, a patsy like Porky Pig, or a wholesome audience POV character like Mickey Mouse. He's just kind of his own guy. That being said, I think the reason that, like, I enjoy Magoo in short bursts, like, 80% of it is Jim Bacchus's voice.
1: Absolutely. I like his weird little man nose, his weird little man hunch and his floppy I'm not gonna lie. He slaps his little tiny toes.
0: I mean, that voice rules in the little under-the-breath rejoinders whenever he confuses something for something else. That's that's where all the humor comes from. And just seeing, like, Bacchus in uh, his real-life roles, like, he's the dad of Rebel Without a Cause and he's the millionaire in Gilligan's Island. And he has a fairly different voice, but I pointed this out on the Rebel Without a Cause episode. Bacchus taught James Dean how to do the magoo voice and it is really weird to hear james dean do the magoo voice because it's not bad
1: why didn't we watch that on youtube before doing this why do you do <laughs> this to me every time we're like hey here's something fascinating and i'm like now i have to sit here for like 45 minutes before i can go look it up
0: there's like this sexy queer 22 year old going drown them my puppies <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Waldo was voiced by Jerry Hausner. Dawes Butler would take over as uh, Magoo's young foil as the series continued. So he did need a new voice actor. So maybe Waldo did die,
2: and Magoo didn't notice because he can't see him anyway. So he doesn't—he doesn't know where Waldo
0: is. You were just waiting for an opportunity to do that one, didn't you? I-
1: to do it. I was getting disappointed. I was like it's not going to happen.
0: Alright, the next short we're talking about is another Magoo short. This one is arguably the most famous one. I mean, when I think of Mr. Magoo, I think of him just like obliviously walking across steel beams in a construction site. I I think of the Christmas episode. Yeah, I
1: I think of the Christmas Carol and his little clickety-clack shoes.
0: Anyways, this one's called Trouble Indemnity and it debuted a year later in 1950. It's like the third or fourth short. In this one, we see an insurance salesman entering Magoo's house, hoping to make a sale. Magoo refuses, but the salesman is eventually able to close by posing as one of Magoo's old college chums. Things take a turn when Magoo is bitten by a dog, actually a tiger rug that he tripped over, and attempts to make a claim. However, instead of going to the insurance building, Magoo enters a building under construction next door. The salesman and his boss eventually notice Magoo walking around the steel skeleton of the building and realize that they'll be liable for a $400,000 insurance claim if falls. They then rush over and make several attempts to save Magoo's life. Shenanigans ensues, but Magoo finds himself unwittingly safe at the end. And that's more or less the formula for, like, almost every subsequent Magoo cartoon.
1: I have a very dumb question, but do you know how much $10 was, like, the equivalent of in 1950? Because, like, he was fighting to get 10 bucks.
0: No idea, but I want to say it's like somewhere between 30 to 50 bucks, depending on like which adjusted for inflation calculator you throw it in. But you can't really trust those.
1: All I'm saying is he went all the way downtown for <laughs>
2: 55.
0: Mean, he's a pretty lonely guy. I think sometimes. Uh, he
2: seemed to have a nice house.
0: Yeah, my favorite Magoo short overall is uh, one where Magoo is victimized by this cabal that steals houses, like they literally pick up houses and steal them, (laughs) and then sell them to other people in a different neighborhood where they physically move the house, and of course Mr. Magoo buys his own house.
2: Naturally, yes. (laughs)
0: By the time Trouble Indemnity debuted, UPA had moved into bigger offices and solidified their approach to animation. Uh, Hubley, during this period, icily and dismissively referred to the rowdy slapstick humor of many cartoons as Warner Brothers humor.
2: We discussed this a little bit in the car on the way over, and, like, not wrong. <laughs> Warner Brothers leaned into the slapstick and prided itself on being, like, lowbrow working class kind of animation studio. It's cool to like different things.
0: Yeah, as I mentioned, like, I'm pretty sure Sylvan's going to think Hubley's a cool guy, except for that one part.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like the Looney Tunes, but, like, they are what they are. He's not wrong. He's only wrong in seeing that as a diss.
0: Hubley has a sophisticated sense of humor. He is an intellectual. Make
2: Mr. Magoo cartoons.
0: Already bored (laughs) with Magoo's limitations as a character. Uh, There we go. I think Magoo is very comparable to the Roadrunner of Pepe Le Pew, where if you see one short, you've essentially seen all of them. And that's fine. I think it's a good formula. You're not meant to watch ten of them in a row.
2: Nah, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Trouble Indemnity was co-directed by Pete Burness, who would soon take over the series. Burness would smooth out Magoo, making him more oblivious than obstinately mead-spirited. Magoo also got a rounder, cuter design by Sterling Sturdevant, one of the few women working in animation outside of the ink and paint department at the time
1: i appreciate her work because he does get really fucking adorable
0: oh yeah by the time we get the christmas carol he's just a the little guy i like him as oblivious
2: too i think the humor works better that
0: way trouble indemnity got an oscar nomination for best short subject losing out to the next one we're going to talk about two of burness's magoo shorts would win oscars uh when magoo flew in 1954 and magoo's puddle jumper in 1956 and the next one we're talking about, the one that won, is Gerald McBoing-Boeing in
2: 1950. Gerald <laughs> does not care <laughs> for
0: this one. Yeah, you said that you watched this as a very young child, as like part of like a Dr. Seuss animation marathon, and uh, it did not do anything for you.
1: Yeah, I, I was like, uh, when you were talking to me about UPA, I was like, it sounds kind of familiar, maybe? And then like I saw that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> I did not care for this at all as a kid.
0: Uh, Our hero is Gerald McCloy, a two-year-old boy who begins talking in the form of sound effects, Uh, his first word being the titular boing-boing. Panicked, his father calls the doctor, who informs him that there is nothing he can do about it. As the boy grows up, he picks up more sounds and is able to make communicative gestures, but is still unable to utter a single word of the English language. He is admitted to a general public school despite this, and is instantly expelled. His problems uh, worsen when he is chided by his peers and given the derogatory name Gerald McBoing Boing. After startling and enraging his father while he's trying to shave, Gerald feels that he has no choice but to hop a train to an unknown location. Just before he catches the train, however, a talent scout from a radio network discovers Gerald and hires him as a Foley artist. McBoing Boing becomes very famous and, more importantly, he has found a place in the world.
2: And suddenly, his parents give a damn about him because
0: he's become rich. As Cheryl pointed out, his mother doesn't even remember to give him his lunch.
1: She doesn't get one word of dialogue. She's just there, like the chair.
0: Gerald McBoing Boing is based on a Dr. Seuss story initially recorded as an album by Billy May. There was also a radio dramatization read by Harold Peary. UPA took an interest when Dr. Seuss just barged into their offices with a record and said, hey, you should turn this into a cartoon. (laughs) And yeah, the narration for this is written in uh, Seuss's very familiar anapestic tetrameter. It is not difficult to figure out that this is his work. Gerald McBoing Boing is generally seen as a breakthrough in limited animation. Hubley unsurprisingly said that the approaches used in Gerald McBoing Boing had more to do with budget than a desire to experiment. Still, this is a prime example of uh, limitation breeding creativity. Uh, characters either stand completely still or move so quickly that in-betweeners can get away with drawing a blur rather than a figure. You got little things that uh, remind me of the Hanna-Barbera collar where like Yogi Bear's head is moving around and talking in the collar but he isn't moving at all or they're recycling fr- underneath the collar. There's an emphasis on close-ups and dialogue-driven humor so the characters don't have to move as much. One of the animators said that the mission was how can we boil this down to the essentials you know recycling the jerky moves of the doctor's legs in order to reflect his personality for instance while he puts his hat on the dad's foot you know all the little gestures like that and not to mention like the characters don't have like clearly painted skin their features just sort of fade into the background especially when it transforms into another scene rather than cutting
1: oh my gosh the night scene like by the train that was gorgeous
0: yeah especially that like worm's eye bit where gerald mcboing boing is chasing the train that was very well executed Gerald McBoing Boing was co-directed by Hubley and Robert Cannon, although Cannon gets most of the credit. According to Cannon, Hubley designed the characters and then largely allowed Cannon to call the shots. It was Cannon's call, for instance, to dispense with the walls, floors, sky levels, and horizon lines, although everyone was excited by the aesthetic that resulted. Gerald McBoing Boing's Oscar win vaulted the UPA to the forefront of animation in a way not seen since Disney in the 1930s. Every animation house began taking cues from U.P.A., most notably when Disney produced Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom in 1953.
1: Which I also saw as a kid and also thought was boring.
0: (laughs) This short beat U.P.A.'s Christopher Crumpet at the Oscars that year, which must have been irritating to U.P.A. UPA produced three sequels Gerald McBoing Boing Symphony in 1953, How Now Boing Boing in 1954, and Gerald McBoing Boing on Planet Moo. Moo got an Oscar nod, losing to the aforementioned Magoo's Puddle Jumper. Gerald McBoing Boing also got a short lived TV show in 1956, and he appears as Tiny Tim in the 1962 special Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol.
2: Oh,
1: hey. Yeah, very familiar. Okay.
0: In 1994, a book was published called The 50 Greatest Cartoons of All Time, as selected by 1,000 animators. Gerald McBoing Boing landed at number 9. It was UPA's highest-ranked uh, short on the list.
1: Do you know who beat, beat it out?
0: Oh, guess what's at number 1. What's Opera Doc? Good guess. Oh, yay! Yeah, the top 5, uh, 4 of them, are Looney Tunes shorts directed by Chuck Jones.
1: Because Chuck Jones is adorable.
0: Generally speaking, these lists exist, so you can argue about them and, like, bitch about what was too low, what was too high, what, what was left off. But out of all, like, the 50 Greatest Anythings list, I looked at this and said, this is correct. Good <laughs> job, List. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the uh, final one that we'll be talking about is Rudy Toot Toot, which Cheryl said uh, was her favorite.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't see that one as a kid, but I really liked it. It was cute, it was jazzy, it was pretty.
0: We open with Frankie on trial for the murder of her piano-playing lover, Johnny. The prosecuting attorney accuses her of shooting Johnny Rudy Toot Toot right in the snoot. We then see Nellie Bly, the singer, that's a lie, that's a lie, she's no singer, shouts Frankie, claiming that she witnessed the shooting firsthand. Uh, The case is looking bad for Frankie after this testimony, but the defense attorney has no cross-examination. You see, her lawyer, Honest John the Crook, spins a wild story involving innocent Frankie, a jealous Johnny, and an incredible ricochet that just travels around town and ends up landing in Johnny, of which Frankie was not involved whatsoever.
1: The magic bullet defense.
0: Honest John then declares that if Frankie were free, he would take her for his wife, being as innocent and wonderful as she is. The jury convenes and very quickly finds Frankie not guilty. Frankie is initially thrilled, but then she sees Honest John waltzing around with Nellie Bly. Consumed with rage, she picks up Exhibit A, the gun, and shoots Honest John, rudy toot toot, right in the snoot in front of the entire courtroom. Our final shot is the prosecuting attorney celebrating and dancing around as the police escort Frankie to jail.
2: <laughs> so it's kind of Chicago-esque? Yeah, right?
0: Gerald McBoing-Boing's Oscar win ignited resentment between Hudley and Cannon, resulting in a power struggle at the studio. Actively looking to step his game up, Hubley ultimately decided to adapt the popular murder ballad "Frankie and Johnny" into an animated short. He picked the source material because he considered Cannon a cutesy director and w- who would never touch the sort of thing with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Frankie and Johnny is based on a real 1899 murder where um, Frankie Baker shot her lover after spotting him in a cakewalk with another woman named Nellie Bly. No, not the reporter. Frankie was acquitted due to an insanity defense and spent the rest of her life in a mental institution, dying in 1953 or so. Some musicologists, however, claim that the song was based on the murder committed by Frankie Stewart Silver in 1832, but some people dispute this because Silver was executed for her crime. Uh, The earliest version of Frankie and Johnny was published by Bill Dooley in 1899. Subsequent revisions by Huey Cannon in 1904 became permanent. Frankie and Johnny has been recorded at least 256 times. Uh, Notable takes were done by Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Big Bill Brunzee, Mississippi Joe Calicott, Sam Cooke, Johnny Cash, Sammy Davis Jr., Burl Ives, Lead Belly, Pete Seeger, Taj Mahal, Charlie Patton, Lena Horne, Bob Dylan, Mississippi John Hurt, Fats Waller, Stevie Wonder, Jerry Lee Lewis, Dave Brubeck, Benny Goodman, and Lindsay Lohan.
1: I, honestly, the one that I had me going was Stevie Wonder, because, like, he's so upbeat and, like, chipper, like, this is she loves, like, she shot him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he, he has more more range than that, though. There's some serious songs, too. Oh,
1: I know, I like, the sweet poppy ones, where they just make my heart smile. So I'm like, ooh.
0: Uh, Elvis Presley's version of Frankie and Johnny served as the basis for one of his uh, Dippy musical comedies through, in the 1960s.
1: How? Did he get shot?
0: Fantastic question. I haven't (laughs) seen that one. Uh, A 1987 stage play based on uh, Frankie and Johnny was adapted into a 1991 film starring Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer.
1: I love Michelle Pfeiffer. I'll see her in anything.
0: Uh, the music for Rudy 22 was arranged by jazz pianist Phil Moore, one of Columbia's regular staff members. Uh, unlike uh, Warner Brothers and Disney, UPA didn't have a staff songwriter, they had the subcontracted out to Columbia employees every single time. Uh, Moore, being black, was almost never credited for his work, but Hubley threw a shit fit with Columbia and got his name up there. Ooh! Uh, Moore is also known for being Marilyn Monroe's voice coach. Uh, the singing was done by uh, Thurl Ravenscroft, Tony the Tiger, "You're a Mean One, Mister Grinch," doing the lawyer, and Annette Warren, who dubbed in Lucille Ball's singing voice in several musicals. I was pleased to discover that Warren is still alive and performing a residency right now at the age of a hundred.
1: Damn. Yeah, no, good for her. We didn't even we didn't even practice that. That was good. <laughs>
0: Uh, Hubley animated Rudy Toot Toot with an old, filthy, and pitted gel roller. He liked the grimy atmosphere it gave the backgrounds. He also used the roller to apply wilder, more arbitrary colors than he ever had before. Uh, He also changes the colors to indicate a shift in mood rather than natural lighting. Uh, Hubley also put great effort into making sure that each figure moved differently from each other.
2: I thought Nellie Bly was a bit distracting. You didn't like the big blue tee? No, or no,
0: the... I
1: did not care for that.
0: Or the way her arms corkscrewed?
1: I liked the corkscrew, I'm not going to lie, that was a fun effect, but she's just like, lulu lulu.
0: Uh, Rudy Toot Toot got an Oscar nod for Best Animated Short, but lost to the Tom and Jerry cartoon The Two Musketeers.
2: Uh, I don't think that was the correct call.
0: <laughs> well, if you look at the winners of the um, best animated short, Bugs Bunny won once.
2: Yeah, that's definitely not the correct
0: call. For Nighty Night Bugs. Did did they, like, what?
2: (laughs) Is this like how people who decide the Oscars now talk about how they don't actually watch the cartoons that are nominated?
0: Well, I mean, we've discussed this many times before. The Oscars are not great at predicting which shorts are going to stand the test of time. Clearly. But yeah, Magoo won two Oscars and Bugs won once for a Frizz Freeling short where uh, Bugs fights Yosemite Sam and a dragon.
1: No, I don't have anything to add to that.
0: <laughs> On the aforementioned 50 Greatest Shorts of All Time list, uh, Rudy Toot Toot got in at 41.
1: I'm disappointed. I liked Rudy Toot Toot.
0: Well, apparently it's not as good as Gertie the Dinosaur, or um, that Disney Plunk one, which is much higher.
1: So it was boring! It's boring as shit! It was made for kids, and kids didn't like it!
2: Cheryl is all kids.
1: Name one! Name one kid that's like, you know what was really great? When the duck and the owl taught kids how to music. (laughs) Those were great. I loved those. I have all of them on tape. Uh, In
0: 1951, a layout artist at UPA named Hubley as a communist to Joseph McCarthy. Hubley was in a communist organization and active in his youth. Uh, Hubley refused to recant his uh, socialist and unionist past and, backed into a corner by Columbia, UPA fired him. In a fit of sour grapes, Hubley claimed that UPA had lost its nerve anyways and was more concerned with administrative costs than in making worthwhile art. Hubley was blacklisted from Hollywood so he got into designing album covers for jazz artists and anonymously directing TV commercials, which those got like even more abstracted and weird than the stuff he did at UPA. Uh, He tried to direct an animated version of the musical Finian's Rainbow with Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald voicing the leads, but McCarthyism torpedoed the project in 1955. Thanks to his second wife, 12 Angry Men script supervisor Faith, Hubbly began directing shorts again. His 1959 short, Moonbird was the first independently produced short uh, film to win an Oscar. Faith and John were credited as a team from then on, collaborating on shorts that were influenced by modern art and astronomy. They produced numerous shorts for Sesame Street and The Electric Company, as well as the 1977 Doonesbury special based on the popular comic strip. Hubbley's last work was the opening sequence for the 1978 film Watership Down. He died the previous year, age 62.
1: I mean, The Watership Down is fucking intense.
0: Yeah, he's right at home there. You don't sound surprised that the Rudy Toot Toot guy also uh, did the one about where uh, rabbits are just tortured for 90 minutes.
1: Right? And like every little kid is just like, yeah, my parents put it on for me and they left the room and then I watched that alone. <laughs>
0: Hubley's daughter, Georgia, plays bass for Yola Tango, which I, that's an interesting wrinkle there. All right, and that brings us to themes. Uh, The first thing I wrote down was uh, ableism and ageism in Mr. Magoo. That feels like kind of an elephant in the room that we're going to have to address one way or the other. Uh, Do either of you have hot takes on it?
1: I've never thought too hard about Mr. Magoo before, I'm not going to lie. I'm sort of sitting here being like, right, he's supposed to be a person.
0: (laughs) It is weird. I mean, I have uh, looked up, like, a couple of disabled people to see what their takes on Magoo were, and there are people who find him condescending or, like, a relic from a previous age, but there are some people who have uh, visual disabilities who find Magoo to be a uh, fun and heartening and relatable character. It kind of reminded me, their words, of queer people appropriating Disney Renaissance villains.
1: I'd rather be Scar than Mr. Magoo, though. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I can get behind that. I I do think that it was the right call to make Mr. Magoo less of an asshole and more of just, you know, a clueless guy who's just wandering through life and things just go his way.
2: Yeah, honestly, I don't think he's that deep, really. It's such meaningless fluff. Like, you can tell that this was what they were doing to keep afloat. It's not well thought out enough to have menace in it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and the uh, documentary we watched on YouTube, done by the Royal Ocean Film Society, he stops it for a good couple of minutes just to like explain in an apologetic manner why Magoo doesn't really do anything for him. <laughs> Mostly just focusing on how repetitive the character is, and you know, once you've seen one, you've seen most of them. Which is, he says that uh, he likes the character, he likes Jim Bacchus's voice. The problem is just the shorts themselves. They found a niche and then you just sort of beat it to death. Which is why I only had you watch the first two.
1: (laughs) I appreciate you.
0: The next thing uh, I wrote down was uh, limitation forcing creativity, which I think is all over these shorts and is a big part of why I find them charming. One of my favorite parts about looking at films is just like seeing the scrappy underdog who can't afford the uh, big industrial light and magic CGI special effects and they're just sort of making do with what they have. Uh, Maybe think of uh, this filmmaker who was shooting something for, um, like, this kid's fairy tale thing. And there was a sequence where the characters were floating. And it would have been super expensive and time-consuming to set up wires or anything like that. So somebody just, like, grabbed the seesaw and had everybody just sort of, like, drift up and down just out of frame.
1: (laughs) That's amazing.
0: Yeah, and I love little stories like that. And UPA is full of them. And then the third thing I wrote down was the universality of abstraction.
1: Give me your thesis, let's hear it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there is some push and pull between Hubbley and, to a lesser degree, Cannon's uh, dislike of the photorealistic rotoscoping found in Snow White and Seven Dwarfs and the Fleischer Superman shorts and all that. And those are, like, super impressive looking. I, I think they're beautiful looking films. And, um, at the same time, they're very specific films, uh, I don't know how long it's been since you've watched Snow White. Uh, while it's a technical marvel and a very beautiful film, it's slow.
1: Snow White and Sleeping Beauty were movies that I did not watch more than once as a kid. That and um, I also did not watch Pinocchio more than once because I thought they were all kind of boring.
2: I I really appreciate Snow White. I watch it semi-regularly, but it is slow on the pacing, and I do appreciate it kind of similar to looking at paintings. <laughs>
0: I mean, everybody who was making Snow White assumed that the audience was going to be so floored by how gorgeous looked and how next level its art was that it would just zip on by. And that was probably the case in the 1930s, and it might not be super fair to look at it by, you know, modern standards. It's also
2: just kind of, like, soothing. I, I put it on when I'm not paying full attention to what I'm
0: watching, too. It kind of makes me think of uh, Star Wars. If you ever watch the original Star Wars, it takes a while to get going because it's supposed to be the first film that puts you in this brand new world with all of these new characters and new concepts and all of that. But we live in an environment where Star Wars is just stitched into the DNA of pop culture. Like, Grandma knows who Chewbacca is. So it feels a little slower, whereas reviews at the time were like, wow, this Star Wars thing just sort of fires off on the landing and just zips along.
1: (laughs) Honestly, my first thought when I think of Star Wars is just, I like puppets!
0: But yeah, abstraction also comes with universality. If you look at the history of art, uh, the idea that you are replicating or imitating real life is an old institution, but abstraction is older still. You know, the, the very first works that you could classify as art, by even the loosest stretch of it, is just an arrangement of shapes that are supposed to symbolize something, which we're not entirely sure what it is anymore. And that made me think that, like, the less specific art becomes, the more universal it is. Like, uh, the monolithic. Lisa is the Mona Lisa, but the silhouette on the bathroom door is every man or woman in the entire world.
1: That's really beautiful.
0: And I do think that's kind of how characters in the UPA shorts can connect with people because Gerald McBoing-Boing is super simple. It is very easy to see parts of yourself in Gerald McBoing Boing, whereas uh, Snow White less so.
2: I-, I liked in the documentary you had us watch when he was talking about how we were having like the barest bone sorts of backgrounds, it adds a sort of interactive level because your brain is going to fill in what isn't there.
0: In-, in McBoing Boing specifically, there's like a door and like a rug, but there's no floor, there's no walls, there's no ceiling.
2: So you're basically making the house if you choose to do so in your head. And again,
1: that's something I appreciate as an adult, hated with a passion as a child.
0: All right. Well, that's everything in my notes. I figure this is going to be a fairly short one since we're talking about four six-minute cartoons. Is there anything it's that you... Ten
2: minutes of dramatic tension over the fate of Waldo. <laughs>
0: He falls down a mountain, climbs up, and then the bear knocks him down again, and then Waldo slips into the house. That's Waldo's role.
1: No, yeah, and he also dives down the mountain when he's getting shot at by his uncle for doing nothing at the <laughs> end. The bandit's coming from behind, but he's shooting forward.
2: Okay, People so... die when you shoot them, Magoo. <laughs> that kills them.
1: He's like, what have I done? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, and with that, Mr. Magoo, Relentless Killing Machine, thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time for something else.